Good morning, my friends, and welcome to PRIO, the Peace Research Institute Oslo, where we uh, do research on various aspects of how we create peace in our world and the reasons there are conflict, or there is conflict, and there is quite a lot right now. So it's a dramatic backdrop for uh, the kind of discussion that we are going to have. One of my favorite things to do in the morning is to meet with three friends and discuss important things. So I'd be doing this anyway. <laughs> but it's even more fun when I have an audience. My name is Henrik Zyssa, and I'm a research professor here at PRIO working on ethical aspects of armed conflict. Special welcome to my wonderful students from Oslo New University College. Yay! Thank you. It was supposed to elicit a yay from you. <laughs> there you go. And to each and every one of uh, the rest of you. I'll give a very brief introduction to the theme, and then I'll let these uh, knowledgeable people right here talk, and I'll introduce them in due course. This seminar is being recorded, just so you know it. So if you cough, it'll be on the tape. <laughs> also, if you should ask questions towards the end, uh, it will also be on uh, tape. So uh, think about that. We are obliged, according to GDP, DPR, isn't that, uh, Samar? <laughs> That's right, to uh, make you aware of that. Now, our topic for several seminars this week in what we call the AI days at Brio is artificial intelligence, which I guess is the opposite of natural stupidity. <laughs> what we are dealing with is, of course, something that is happening at a very rapid pace in our world, the development of new technological possibilities through the sorts of digital instruments we are talking about. Machine learning processes where we can end up with machines that can do things A, human beings could ever do themselves, and maybe B, things we do not fully understand. And out there in the literature, there is quite a lot of warning going on that this could be really dangerous. And then there are the big optimists that say that we are essentially dealing with a technology that will solve all of those things that have dogged mankind for so long. Most of us in the research community find ourselves somewhere in the middle, and we try our best to enlighten our audiences on what are the actual possibilities. Now, you could ask, looking at the two major wars that are close to us in the Middle East and in Ukraine, does AI have anything to do with that? Isn't that remarkably low tech? No, actually not. We are seeing uh, several forms of weapons and defense systems that are essentially guided by very advanced digital technologies. But it's true that, of course, what Hamas did in Israel was also old-fashioned in the sense that we are not dealing with the direct sort of use of AI, which leads also to the whole problem of asymmetry. Okay, what we are trying to do at Prio is to uh, ask questions, and one of those with whom I am asking questions is my good friend Greg Reichberg here, who is also a research professor here at Prio. We are almost towards the end of a project called Warring with Machines, which is an attempt at finding out how we speak and think ethically about artificial intelligence, and we have also done projects for the Norwegian Ministry of defense. Cecilia Hellestveit is one of Norway's leading international uh, lawyers, and she is from the Norwegian Academy of International Law at the current time. Many of you will have heard her comment not only on this topic and its relation to international law, but right now also what is happening in the Middle East. And Samar Navas is a doctoral researcher here at Prio, working especially on regulation, and not least how regulation is playing out in the EU. And that's not just in the military field, but definitely also in the civilian field, and these things overlap each other. So you are really fortunate to have ended up here this morning because here we have some of the real specialists on the theme. I'll end with a story that I like of a uh, girl coming home to her mom. Uh, she's just started school and she says, you know, today we have learned to write. Wow, says the mother. So what did you write? And she answered, I have no idea. We haven't learned to read yet. And we are a little bit there. <laughs> we are trying to find our way, but uh, we are struggling with fully understanding the ramifications of what's happening. So that just as an introduction, they will now have five minutes each. I'll start each of their sections with a little question, and you, of course, answer exactly what you want to. And then we'll have a little bit of discussion between ourselves up here. We'll set aside time for some questions at the end, and we'll finish at 9.30 sharp. So, Greg, there are dramatic changes, but as a philosopher, as an ethicist, what do you see as the main changes that we should be aware of? Okay. <clears throat> I mean, I think it would be helpful to talk a little bit about the current situation, just to get a sense of where we're at with respect to the use of AI. Uh, 
AI represents a basket of different technologies. It's, it's not one thing. Uh, so, and it, there's been a tremendous focus on autonomous weapon systems, namely systems that both identify targets. Oh yeah, systems that both, is this working? You got me now? Systems that both identify targets and then execute the targeting decision. Uh, that's one type of AI capability. Another type of AI capability involves battlefield coordination. You know, battlefields are complex settings, and they ordinarily will involve uh, troop movements, um, surveillance systems, and then the whole command structure. Those are the two main settings in which AI has been um, considered and implemented within a battlefield settings. So if we look at the two current conflicts, uh, Ukraine and uh, Israel-Gaza, there appears to have been very little use of autonomous weapon systems. There are some reports that uh, autonomous drones have been used in Ukraine, uh, but those reports have not yet been verified. So on the other hand, in Ukraine, there's been extensive use of AI in battlefield coordination, and that appears to have given the Ukrainians an edge, mainly towards the beginning of the war. Uh, when it comes to Gaza, uh, interestingly, the, the first use of swarm warfare, swarm weaponry, uh, is reported to have been in 2021 uh, Israel using uh, uh, a swarm of drones in, in Gaza. But in the present conflict, there doesn't appear to have been a whole lot of uh, AI use. And I'll add that the, um, the one reason that for the uh, Israeli debacle seems to have been overconfidence in technology. And just that Henrik said that this was very low-tech on the Hamas side. I would sort of qualify that a little bit because the Hamas side seems to have understood very well what the techno, tech, techno, technological capabilities were on the Israeli side. So one of the first things they did was take out the cell towers. And so they, they um, basically destroyed the, the communication lines. Okay. That's on the, the battlefield setting. That's what I sort of came prepared to address in this first moment. Uh, there are a tremendous amount of ethical issues that need to be raised. And, and to keep it super short, because I know my time's just about up, so much of the attention, ethical attention, has been on autonomous weapon systems. Do they, are they, do they run contrary to human dignity? Do they imperil human dignity? Uh, there has been a relative neglect of the ethical issues that arise in the context of battlefield coordination, uh, and, it, and including targeting systems, um, or, um, recommendation systems. Battlefield commanders receive recommendation from automated systems. Uh, the use of big data. All of that raises really pressing ethical issues that, that um, are actually more um, relevant to the current settings than the really heated disputes about autonomous weapon systems. So, Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> among those of us working on this from the uh, philosophy and ethics side, should we switch microphones or is that okay? Yeah, okay, good. Sorry about that. Just leave. <laughs> uh, one of the things we are discussing is uh, whether the current frameworks are up to this. Uh, my students and myself look at the question of uh, the uh, traditional military ethics, what we sometimes call the just war framework. The question is, does it hold up when we are facing these brand new sorts of technologies being used in war? And of course, the same question comes up when it comes to international law. Do we have the necessary legal framework to tackle this? Cecilia, please. Well, in terms of how you wage war what you can target, what are lawful effects. I think roughly it holds up. And this is also the military lawyer's approach saying that, you know, we don't need new law for war fighting because we have one already. And it has always been just, you know, military technology has been developing throughout the ages and we have overall general principles that you have to adjust. So as a point of departure, it fits. However... 
I think from my perspective, there are three main questions. And one is the not in below uh, regulations. How do you, you know, perform war, war fighting? But the in below um, regulation, the right to the use of force outside of territory or your, of, yeah. ad bellum, your, your right to use force outside of your sovereign territory. Because currently, these rules are very much linked to territory and sovereignty. And when we have autonomous weapon systems in the sea, the deep seas, because some of the areas where we are really seeing uh, a rapid development of autonomy is in the maritime sector and in space and in cyber to some extent. And these are domains, military domains, where there are no territorial boundaries, meaning that when, when we have an American dominance, it's not that dangerous. But when the Chinese and the Americans and the Indians and the Brazilians and the Turks, and the, when they are all in this domain with their military capabilities and they are autonomous, we do foresee an increase of unintended armed conflict. <laughs> Because of a number of reasons, because when you have tensions, such as in the Middle East today, between many, many countries, and there is one little incident, it can blow over. So the, the, the increased risk of unintended or machine-initiated war is really heading towards us. This is one, one issue. Now, the second issue is the question of how do we program our machines? Because when you deal with war fighting, there are two uh, human beings among the enemy. Now, one are the combatants, the lawful targets. How do you program a machine for neutralizing human beings? Because human beings, under the laws of armed conflict, they are allowed to surrender. They can be injured. When they surrender, you cannot engage them anymore. They have immunity because they are victims of war. They are defenseless persons in your custody. So do we program our machines to say, oh, <laughs> you indicate surrender? And then the question is, is the enemy soldier allowed to fool the machine? Because in international law, it's not allowed. If you surrender and you say, I want the protection of international law, you cannot use that protection to gain a military advantage because there is this equality of belligerence, and it has to do with chivalry and a number of you know, ancient traditions. But when we have a machine, why should it not be allowed to fool a machine? And should we program our machines for the idea that human beings, they can, be, you know, they can fool you, they can lie, and they can cheat. So you need to make sure. So there are a number of questions when you move into the real, real issue of the matter in how we program our machines. Now, the second issue has to do with how we program our machines for the encounter between lawful targets and civilians. And I just want to, I mean, the idea is that with these systems, we will have increased precision. We will know much more about the theater of war, so we can be more precise in our targeting, and we can limit civilian casualties. But it isn't that simple. <laughs> if you take one example, there was an, a valley in Afghanistan, with a, this is from a couple of years back, where a group of American soldiers entered into a valley. And there were Taliban soldiers in the valley. And they installed themselves up in the mountains. And then there was a little girl, age about 11. And she came up to say hello. And she was peeking into the, this campament they had you know, established because they were going to attack the valley. And they knew that she was sent there from the Taliban. They knew that she was actually a spy gathering intelligence, military intelligence. And under the laws of armed conflict, she could be engaged. She could be neutralized, captured, or even killed. So if they, these soldiers, they didn't do anything. They let her go. A couple of hours later, the Taliban attacked, and they were driven out of the valley. And when they had the, the, uh, the talk after this attack, the commander asked them, who in this room thought it was a right decision not to engage, not to kill that girl? And all the soldiers said this was the right decision. The price would have been too high. But if they had had a parameter over their camp surveilled by a drone that would attack those trying to get, gather uh, intelligence, she would have been killed. 
So the question is, how do we program these machines? Because they can really provide us with instruments that are very, very precise. But precision is not always what you want in war. You want something else. So that is the, 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 the second and the third is, of course, do we have the, the framework for dealing with this? And I think uh, we don't, but I do think that there is an urgency among all the major military powers that is that everyone sees that we cannot let this development take place without some type of control. And picking up on what Greg said, the question, of course, is, are we talking about autonomous weapons? Are these means of war? I think we should rather think of them as methods of war. Autonomy is a method of war. And that would open some new avenues for, for potential regulation. Thank you, Cecilia. I'm thinking there should be a chivalry mode for these uh, <laughs> weapons. Uh, just a very quick follow-up on your first question. Are you saying that there is a greater danger of uh, unintended war? Yes, I think so. Yeah. I think that is one of the, the main issues, actually, because we are heading into an area where we have increased... It's more crowded. The space is going to be more crowded of many type of actors with varying degrees of tensions among them. And if you have one incident, which is programmed, pre-programmed, the other autonomous weapon systems will be programmed to answer. And this will take place pretty quickly. And the question is, at what point will you discover that it was unintended? Perhaps at a point in time when the armed conflict is already a fact. So it's, it's kind of, it's a, it's a dangerous phase, so to speak. Thank you. Thank you. Samar, you are working on, as a doctoral researcher, on the regulation. And one of the things we hear the most often is that we are faced with something that now needs proper regulation. You hear from everyone, even, you know, the AI gurus are now saying, please regulate our industry. But how is it going with this regulation push? Is it working? Are we good? All right. Um, no, first of all, thank you. And uh, it's really interesting to, to, to see the discussion happening here because uh, what I'm going to say is pretty much relevant to what they're saying. Before I get into this regulation thing, um, it's also important to understand that this is not the first time that this topic is being discussed. When you're finalizing this panel, I talked with Greg, like AI and war sounds so classical thing, you know, what's the new thing? This whole discussion about human oversight, everything that we're discussing. It has been discussed, we are discussing it, and this is surely not the last time that we're going to discuss this thing. But what's fascinating is how new developments take place, and then we are back at the same questions about human oversight, about meaningful control and everything. So first thing I want to point out is how this civil-military uh, nexus arises in this AI technology. So you have a lot of civilian applications in terms of AI technology which are transferred to military sector. Uh, under this, this is discussed in dual-use technology um, domain. Um, and, and a recent example of that is large language models, which are being now used or experimented by the U.S. Department of Defense in precisely what Greg was talking about in, in the operational planning. So, of course, we are not looking at Robocops or Terminator kind of uh, robots there, but, you know, these systems are going to help or contribute towards planning of military action, which is, which is also quite alarming. Um, and so the problem with these large language models, is, as everybody knows, is that there's a huge interpretability issue. And uh, it's, it's like how I see it is, is, you know, when you go to a magic show and this magician pulls out a rabbit from a hat, now, that's fascinating to see, like where the rabbit is coming from. But I don't want to have this fascination in normal society. Now what's happening in these large language models is, we don't know why is it coming up with this kind of answer, but it is. And the, the, the fact that we don't know it creates a lot of problems, like hallucination, as we talk about. And even the creators, the magician who's pulling out the rabbit from the hat does not even understand what's going to come out. Sometimes it's rabbit, sometimes it's snake, sometimes it's something else. And everything relating to explainability, when you especially see these large language models or machine learning models, you see that it comes as more like a reactive thing. It's not proactively, you know, discussed and designed. As, as Cecilia said, programming, design, this is important. This is the stage where you need to pay more attention to. Now, coming to law, uh, 
it, it was a funny meme that my friend just uh, shared with me the other day. It was like, I feel as useless as international law. I, I, I mean, no disrespect to international law, but this is what I also, it, I recall that when Cecilia was explaining all the laws are there. And it's an important thing because law should be perceived as just one piece of the puzzle. There's so much more happening in larger governance structure that is, at, at, uh, that is, that is problematic. Now, this, the problem that we are facing with AI technology or its problems is not because we don't have a system. It's because our system is functioning to create those kind of uh, AI technologies which are full of hallucinations and problems. And I'm not talking about the law. I'm talking about you know, general governance structure. When you see law, law has a, its own problems. And uh, one of the problems, uh, I'm going to go a bit more narrow. Uh, so we have in AE, we have AI regulations. Um, and it's hyped, you know, there's a discussion in, at European Parliament and everything. But if you, if you look at those regulations, it's not going to be so, after, after its enforcement, it's not going to create such a big change because it has its own issues. It works horizontally. It's heavily standard-driven. You would have sector-specific standards and then standards under it. So after the promulgation of this act, you're not going to see something super different. I hope. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic, but let's face the reality. And then when you come to sector-specific regulations, now here comes my research, which is about civilian drones, you see other issues. And, and uh, one of those issues that I want to point out is maba-maba problem. that says machines are better at versus men are better at. And regulators don't have clear idea about where to draw the line. And things are seen in a very simplistic way. Now, these AI systems, I would like to see them as hybrid systems. I'm not, I'm not coming out as a, coming up with decelerating narrative for AI. It needs to be more mindful, you know, because these systems would be part of this society, and they need to be working together with humans, this human AI teaming. We need to envision some hybrid systems. And when you envision these hybrid systems, you need to be very mindful of what machines are good at and what men are good at. You cannot just put human in the loop by, by giving that human supervisory control. You need to understand the context within which that specific system would operate and what human, how it can actually enhance human autonomy and, and uh, by, by taking some tasks from human. Um, I guess my five minutes are up. And Cecilia already wants to comment yeah. to defend, <laughs> to defend international law. I've heard yes. as useless as philosophy. I haven't heard about international law. Thank you, Samar. And please, Cecilia. Okay. Now, I, I very much agree with, with uh, most of what you say. However, I mean, we have one area in the world where uh, artificial intelligence is being regulated. And this is by the EU. The, the uh, AI Act is coming up. Uh, the EU has never been overwhelmed with so many inputs before. Now, the regulations, the regulatory framework, as it currently stands, is, has been watered down. I think that the suggestions that were on the table in June uh, were pretty good. Now they're not so good anymore. So it's, it's, kind of, it's heading towards the, the bottom line, basically. But it's going to be very important for regulation of civilian AI, but it is negatively circumscribed against all type of military applications. Why? Because when you deal with artificial intelligence for civilian use, you are looking at, you know, accidents, uh, what about how, who is responsible if there is a, a malfunction and so forth. In military application, you are dealing with a hostile competitor who is trying to rack your system, hack your system, make it malfunction on purpose. It means that the, 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 the way you approach this in civilian and in military uh, areas needs to be different. And that is also reflected, so to speak, in the way the legal regulation is, is approached. Now, the, our problem is that normally legal regulation of, of development of weapons is done in Geneva, in the CCW, or in, the, or in New York. Now, for, for, for reasons that we all know, New York is not working properly these days for these types of huge questions. So then, what about Geneva? The CCW has been going on now since 2016, hasn't come up with very much, basically just stating what is already 
an obligation under international law. So ba basically agreeing on stating that the, the earth is still round. And we are still fighting uh, about definitions. So basically the CCW is not really functional for the purpose. And then the question becomes, so where? should we do this regulation? Uh, so it's basically, I, I do uh, buy some of your points, but I think that international law is the most important tool we have for making all the major military powers who are developing and deploying these, mm. these weapons actually agree. And we have done this before. We did it with chemical weapons. Uh, chemical weapons was developed by civilian technology. It found its way into the battlefield. All states agreed, no, we're not going to use it in that way. And it stuck. We did it with uh, blinding laser weapons. They were prohibited in 1993. Uh, two years ago, we had blind, well, we had laser weapons rolled out because now technology has developed into a stage where the soldiers are not blinded for life merely for an hour. That is acceptable. So, I mean, international law is a, a, a very important tool. The problem is that we are struggling a little bit to find the appropriate platforms these days. And Greg, you'll get the word in a sec, but uh, one of the challenges here is, of course, that what we broadly call AI-enabled weaponry is not that easy to define. You can define chemical weapons, but what we're talking about here. Uh, could you remind us very quickly what the CCW stands for? Yeah, uh, it's the Convention on Certain conventional weapons, and it's a framework convention, meaning that all the state parties to the framework convention, a number of them, 160 roughly, they come together each year to discuss new technologies or old weapons that are being used, and whether or not these weapons will violate um, the main principles of international law, mainly then uh, the prohibition against indiscriminate weapons or the prohibition against unnecessary superfluous injury, which is also, by the way, not sufficient today because we are having an, an emerging norm about protecting the environment, which is also coming into to lawfare and is not really into that framework. So we might say that the framework is perhaps becoming somewhat only certain outdated. Weapons, so yeah. there you go. Uh, Greg, please. Yeah, just uh, here, here um, maybe, two maybe, closer, yeah. maybe two qualifications um, to what uh, Cecilia just said. First of all, I think it needs to be recognized that international law is often more permissive than what ethics would expect of us, okay? Because yes. for two reasons. One is international law arises from, often from a consensus among states. And so, you know, compromises are reached. Uh, secondly, there are just topics that international law simply has not covered. Nuclear weapons, there are very few restrictions on them, actually. Um, there is also a convention to ban them. <laughs> yeah, but, 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 but that... Yeah, but that he gave that the Nobel Prize. <laughs> he gave it a Nobel Prize, but it hasn't entered into force uh, for, for the, the, nu the uh, nuclear-possessing states. So, but that, that's, a, that's a huge advance, but still, you know, it's limited. The, um, so you've got this issue about ethics. I, I think um, the, the other... Um, it also should be uh, – started to lose my point here. Sorry. Oh, let's, let's just – it'll come back to me. Yeah. Move on. Yeah. Mark, please. No, uh, as I said, no disrespect to the international law, but uh, my point was, I mean, I, I find it questionable. And I would connect it to what you said, you know, the, the world is round. In, in some sense, the world is pretty flat now. We are living in a different time. Yes, things were different back then, you know, 90s, the 90s, 80s, everything. We had conventions, things – operated in the way that we wanted them to operate. But with this new alien that we have in our society, this, the way the world has flattened for us, we need some new mechanisms. And we need to question, and we need to be critical. That's, that's my point about what can international law do? Can we imagine the same kind of law or convention as we had for other you know, prohibited weapons and stuff? Um, and I think then you would come into this point where, okay, international law is important, but then we have to see what's happening at the national level because, you know, you have this problem how technology is transferred from one state to another, and, and it's already there, you know. That, that leads, could I just, leave, my point came back. Actually, it's, it's this. I don't think we should lean too heavily on international law either. There are other sources of norms. So, um, and Samar just pointed to that when he mentioned the domestic setting. There, there's a, a principle sometimes called subsidiarity. 
meaning when an issue can be handled on a lower, lower level, closer to the ground, it should be. So states, at least some states, have worked quite a bit on developing norms around AI in the context of weaponry. I mean, uh, the U.S., I think, has been very much at the forefront of this. Uh, and then European states, even China, is now attending to um, issues around the safe use of AI weaponry. And that can seem like a bit of a you know, contradiction in terms because the whole, the whole point of a weapon is to cause harm. But you want it to cause harm in predictable ways. You don't want it to cause harm in ways that would recoil back on the user. You don't want it to cause harms in ways that would, that would harm um, uh, civilians. So, uh, so there, there is a body of norms that are emerging and I think this doesn't have the character of international law, but these are norms that states are binding themselves to in a way unilaterally. So there's a whole testing regime around the, the, these new weapons. So, yeah. Can, can I just also say one thing? Now, remember, uh, international law, when it comes to warfare, is a pretty concrete thing because the military commander will call the lawyer. Is it allowed to do this? Yes or no? So international law in, interna in, in warfare is something else very often, you know, because there is a hierarchy and law is being used by military commanders to ensure discipline in the ranks, which is also one of the reasons that the military commanders are very, very negative to some of the developments of AI because they are losing control over their own uh, military uh, hierarchy. And, 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 and so law is an instrument for war fighting. This is what I very often struggle with when I, when I teach humanitarian law and people come to my class with thinking that we're going to, 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 to learn about how law protects human beings. No, no, law is an instrument for war fighting by major states. So I'm, I'm, I don't really, I, I see your points and I also agree that it is absolutely not sufficient and other normative frameworks are also being used, but I do think that we should not underestimate the importance of law. And what are international lawyers doing these days? They are making manuals, international manuals where experts, governmental experts from a number of important countries come together and say, okay, so the rules of, of, of maritime warfare, what do they look like now? The rules of uh, warfare in space, what do they look like now? The rules of warfare in cyber, what do they look like? So we have these these manuals being drafted, and they will then be considered by state to be, yes, this is customary law, and that is going to be the law. So there is work being done, uh, and, and this is quite controversial, so you now often have two manuals being developed by different countries. So there is normative or legal work being done. Uh, unfortunately, Norway is not very present in these processes for re reasons we don't really know. They will uh, be after this meeting. <laughs> so, I hope. But thanks, Cecilia. Great. Please, follow up quickly. Um, yeah. I, I agree, Cecilia. Law is an important factor. But when rules of engagement are developed, and actually rules of engagement are even more important in the age of AI than they were previously, because the the rapidity of the of the um, operations themselves mean that it, there isn't much time to think ethically or legally in the midst of the operation itself. So you need to front load law. You need to front load ethics. So I, I but but there's more to rules and engagement than international law. There's a whole set of other factors that that feed into it. And one of the arguments. Uh, around AI, one of the ethical arguments, you've all heard human dignity arguments, somehow, you know, one line of the dignity argument is it somehow weakens the dignity of the, of the commander. Because the commander, when these tools are used, particularly autonomous weapon systems, may not be able to maintain proper control of the subordinate. In this case, the subordinate's a machine. So that, that, that's an important consideration. Yeah. I remember we had some uh, articles on rules of engagement and their relationship to international law in the absolutely excellent journal of military ethics. There I managed to put it in, where we have the editorial office here at Prio. I'd like to uh, take exactly what's been said now and introduce a term that you briefly mentioned, namely control. Does anyone in this room know what happened that was quite consequential on September 26th in uh, 1983? 
Then a Soviet lieutenant colonel called Stanislav Petrov got clear signals that uh, nuclear weapons were about to attack, strategic nuclear weapons, the Soviet Union. And his duty was to report this up the chain of command, and he was pretty sure that if he reported it from what he had, they would initiate a nuclear counterattack. He decided, as a human being, not to do so. And he based that on, even though this was a time of high tension, it was right after the Korean jetliner, it was not at all that unlikely, but he thought it's strange, because if they're attacking us, there would probably be more missiles, and we don't have any sort of background intelligence that are planning to do this today. I'll simply keep shut. Arguably, Stanislav Petrov uh, saved us that day. And he had human control, which is one of those things we are using all the time. You know, sufficient, meaningful human control. So what we're trying to do with regulation is, of course, to maintain this control. But let me try this angle and answer whatever you want tomorrow. But are we too late because this technology is developing so fast that we're not managing to create regulation that actually gives us control? Um, I think the, 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 I would not see it as a bad thing, to be fair. Regulatory lag is there, but it, it would be there. Technology comes first and then law. I mean, I don't know if you're going to start doing things on a speculative basis. I don't know where you would get yourself into. And I think you should embrace it. Like, yeah, it's going to happen. And then we're going to. So, you know, this is like a growing pain for technology people that they, you know, as they say, oh, yeah, these issues arise when the technology is as it is and see. And then the law people should come, come there and tell them that, yeah, when law is developing, then there's a growing pain around that also. So we need to have this balance. But I would just add something very, it's a good example. And I was thinking about that. Now, we are talking about 1983, right? And then the system tells, okay, there's this indication. Now we are living at a time where these systems are intelligent. Now, this is different, in my view at least. A system which people, at least society, perceives it that way, maybe there would be some skeptical people. But then there comes this human factors issue where you would question twice. I don't know if that person in 2023 or maybe, say, 2030 would have this indication from this really intelligent system telling there is some attack happening. And would that person not rely on that? Because that's a, that's a big dilemma. There comes this um, automation bias and, and, you know, aversion. Like, am I going to rely it? Because if you're going to rely it, then you're, are you overly relying it? Or if, if you're not relying on it, you're skeptical, you know? You're very much uh, doubtful on the system. And that's why we talk about these trustworthy systems and all. But just to say, you know, if it was erroneous, just think about the consequences. I don't know what that person would do. I would be, I would, if I was that person, I don't know what I'm going to do, but it's going to be different now considering the systems have... Absolutely. By the way, just to finish the story, the thing was that there was sun reflecting off clouds and the way it reflected looked as if something was moving very quickly through the air. So that's what it was. Maybe it would have detected that today. Yes, please, Greg. You know, the, the challenging thing is it can cut the other way. So in this particular instance, the instruments were giving the wrong reading. There was another famous case, I forget what year actually, when an Iranian civilian aircraft was shot down. And it was shot down by something called the, by U.S. servicemen using something called the Aegis battleship defense system. The system actually indicated radar that it was a civilian aircraft, but the servicemen overrode the system indication. Uh, and I, I had a conversation with Aegis, uh, a former Aegis uh, operator, and he said they used to sit around together, the operator saying, what's going to do more harm to your career? Shooting, mistakenly shooting down civilian aircraft, thinking it was an incoming missile, for example, or erring on the side of caution, not shooting down something because you're not entirely certain of what it is, and then taking a hit to the vessel. Uh, they finally decided that shooting down a civilian aircraft would end your career right there or worse. So they would lean more on the side of taking a hit to the vessel, which is an interesting reflection. Um, so, but again, this issue of how to interact with machines, and the example you gave, Henrik, is not about an autonomous weapon system. It, it, it's about uh, a, a system that, that's meant to support human judgment. How much are you going to lean on that?
No, it's not AI, but it is what uh, you just mentioned earlier, namely automation bias or data bias. That's a term we use when we trust the systems because they're smarter than us. Anyone here has experienced that with GPS. It says, turn right. Turn right? Well, it's probably right. Uh, let let me add something because I very much agree with what Greg said about, you know, the judgment is, is moving away from the battlefield and into the drawing board in a way. So you have... You, you, you now make some of the judgments much, much earlier, and it's sometimes engineers making them. Now, uh, when it comes to the... Uh, to, in international law, we have been discussing this for 15 years. What type of intelligence do you need in addition to intelligence being provided by machine, be, machines? Because in, when it comes to uh, surveillance and, and gathering of intelligence information, we have been relying on machines for some time. And the question is, what does the military commander need in addition to that? for triangulation, or can he just simply rely on these systems? And as the systems become much more powerful, how can the military commander say precisely that? No, I, I, I think the machines are, are wrong. Now, but this has been solved by international law by saying, as long as the states do not come up with new rules, we have to rely on the old rules, meaning that the military commander is responsible. And from my perspective, this is one of the reasons why also major military states are now saying, oh, we need new regulation, because we won't be able to take advantage of autonomy if the military commander is going to you know, remain really, really responsible in this way. So I think there is this duality here where we are moving into a new era of international law, and in that regard, I agree with you, because it's not, it's not really fitting uh, when we look at very, very complex war-fighting autonomous systems in, in the future. We, I don't think we are there yet, but, I mean, if we look 30 years ahead, I mean, certainly we will be. Thank you. Uh, I ask all of you to think about whether you have any questions that you'd like to ask to our brilliant panel here. And I was now planning to say, as you think about that, I have another question, but one hand is already up. And it's, uh, Nick, how do we do with uh, microphones for that? Um, We'll just uh, hand that over. Thank you very much. And he's in the back there. Please. Thank you so much, Nick. Please uh, state your full name and uh, number. Yeah. No. <laughs> uh, thanks very much. Uh, Nick Marsh uh, from Prio. Uh, question for all the members of the panel. Um, you focused very much upon the practical problems of machines fighting in warfare, that they may not make the decisions that we'd want humans to, to make. Um, but if we look into the future, uh, technology is advancing very rapidly. Um, you spend as much time watching science fiction as I do. You, you, you see scenarios in which machines uh, make decisions uh, you know, in the same way that humans can. Can you imagine a scenario in which a robot army would be okay if it was sufficiently technologically advanced? Or are you against... Uh, robots uh, in all circumstances, uh, no matter how far advanced the technology is. Thank you, Nick. I can refer all of you to Star Wars 2, which deals with this. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, who would like to give that a stab somewhere? I'll start over no. with you. Or you can begin. No, no, no. No, just uh, I think here it's important to... Gosh, I forgot the question. I just I got drifted away. No, um... The question, the question he put was about how do oh yeah how do you see the future future uh, warfare and if uh, robots are, or AI is good or not? I do not think it could be. It's it's such a big problem if we are on the right direction. If we embrace the technology in terms of you know teaming, we need to team up with them. These systems should be more hybrid. Now, how should that hybridity look like? That's what we should work on. We, we tend to perceive, at least this is, this is my impression, we, we tend to perceive AI as, or the, the way it's developing by, by, by the, you know, the industry, it's like, oh, it's a different thing. It's like, it's going to do things on its own. It's going to be a self-driving car, and we're going to be isolated from all the system, you know. Then, then comes this black box issue. That's going to do things, and we're going to be just at a distance. We need, we need not be at distance. We need to be working with them. These systems, these machines should be helping us. In, in terms of enhancing our autonomy. So that's the optimistic side that I can see. Yeah. Which is closely linked to a term you used earlier, namely that it should be explainable somehow. 
that we somehow understand, at least to a certain degree, at least on the input-output level. Yes, please, Cecilia. Yeah, uh, that's the same challenge that we have for civilian use, by the way. Uh, now, I was participating in this European research project uh, during two years, and we were we were following. Uh, the development of ground-based autonomous weapon systems, and we were we were a, a team of lawyers making you know the requirements that the engineers need when they are pre-programming the uh, the autonomous weapon systems. And we were participating in this in this test when we we had two attacks on a village, one by only machines and one of special forces with machi- machines. Which of those two scenarios would I prefer? I can promise you from here to the day I die, the, mach- the, the, the scenario where you have special forces going in with the machines. Because when you have humans in, that, in, in the field, there is, this, there is this human dimension to it. Because if there is a person who is injured or if there is a girl who is left, the machines will see it. But you, you, the human presence adds something to it. Because to see a village being attacked by machines alone, for me, was pretty scary. Because that is when human civilization meets machines, pre-programmed by somebody very far away saying, do this task. And the, the, the human dimension of it is, is, is removed entirely. So the argument is often that when you have machines in war, you will not have the raping of all the women and the men. No, I don't think that is the main problem. I think the main problem is that in war, a number of human beings will defer from killing people when it is not necessary. And the machines will, will, will not do that. So I, I think, for me, I, I would really rather prefer to have humans interacting with the machine, just as <laughs> my colleague said. Greg, yeah. we philosophers like the human dimension, don't we? We, we, we like the human dimension, but... If the next question was about where are things trending into the future, um, I think right now uh, it, commanders are able to maintain a reasonable control over autonomous, autonomous agents is because the, the number of autonomous agents that are being fielded are not very large. So I mentioned this Israeli use of, of a swarming. I, th- I think there may have been about t- 10 drones in the swarm. Uh, but the trend is towards more and more swarm warfare. And the, the swarm, the, the, what's unique about a swarm is it's not um, moving forward in a, in a strict hierarchy, right? Swarms are more like a soccer team where there are different roles and, and some sort of dynamically changing as you go along, but you could conceive of, of swarms in the thousands, even greater number than the thousands. We're not anywhere near that yet. But in such a case, a, 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 a battlefield commander would not be able to, to maintain a direct control over the, the, the operation itself. So some people say we're going to move from a senator, uh, uh, what is it called, the, 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 the human horse, the, a, a centaur, a centaur conception of sort of human-machine interaction and where to a, uh, a setting where humans would be like shepherds, but the flock would kind of move in its own way. So we could end up in a situation where more and more decision-making are delegated to the machines fighting each other. And that could become a dangerous scenario as you start with the machine starts assuming functions that are go beyond the tactical all the way up to the strategic. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I'll just um, adding there that one of the key parts of the literature on this also deals with the dangers of good old-fashioned mistakes, such as hacking a machine not working, and of course a cascading effect. If you uh, imagine a swarm with uh, a thousand different drones, and one of them is hacked by the enemy uh, enemy input, and that uh, quickly spreads over approximately 15 seconds, and it takes three minutes before the operator uh, notices. That's, that's, a, that's a challenge. But we have a few more hands, and I think we'll take both of those. So we have the microphone in the back, and please state your name and where you're from. So there, Stephen, right there. Yeah, right in front of you, there. And we'll just uh, uh, gather them up and let you uh, comment towards the end. Please. Yes, hi, I'm Stina Bergesh, and I also work at Prio. 
Uh, thank you for a very interesting discussion. Uh, I was just curious, because you've talked a bit about the, um, the international level and the European level, and I'm just curious, is there something, can you say something about what is taking place or perhaps what should be taking place, could be taking place also on the uh, more local or national level? Great question. Remember that one? Local level. What, what, what can we do to put it that way in Norway? I saw a few more hands. There is one right there, please. Please uh, state your name. Uh, there comes the microphone. Good. Thank you. Uh, my name is Imran Azad. I'm from Bangladesh. So uh, my question is about uh, the responsibility, criminal responsibility aspect of uh, the crimes that we are talking about. So in terms of formulating regulations for monitoring or regulating AI, uh, do the policymakers also consider the criminal responsibility aspect of using machines and if it is so do you think considering autonomous weapons only as a method of war is problematic thank you so much the responsibility question one that often comes up you know the machine made me do it how did you end up here the gps told me to uh thank you very much an important one was there one more hand over here is that okay okay uh the Oh, yes, please. We'll take one more, and then uh, you'll get a chance to uh, sum up. Thank you so much. Please. Um, my name is Federico Campagnolo from Italy. And uh, we said we like our uh, human dimension and uh, that we have a problem with um, lethal autonomous weapons, uh, for example, uh, killing when they shouldn't. Uh, but couldn't we steer away from the problem directly by... Uh, relegating uh, autonomous systems to, uh, to a role of uh, rescue, uh, for example, of injured soldiers or civilians in urban areas where fighting is taking place? Thank you. Thank you so much. Very important question. What do we use these things for? And are there things they can do well that are not so dangerous? So I'll go in the reverse order from the way we started, and you can comment on any of these questions that are really important or other things you want to sum up with towards the end. And uh, you know, local regulation, that's a really good one. Responsibility. And, uh, and what the heck should we use these sorts of systems for? Uh, Samar, grab any part of that you like. I I'll tie two questions together and then the third one also. So the question about local initiatives and responsibility. Um, now I'm, I'm not an expert in war law and I'm more expert in, in European regulations, particularly, you know, civilian drones. And of course, touching on that aspect also about what good can come out of this technology. So uh, at a local level, I think local regulations are very crucial for how AI would be used. At EU level, as I earlier mentioned, you know, you have AI regulations, but they would be so much more delegated to the member states and standardization bodies. And one of those things is particularly the, the liability part. Um, at EU level, for instance, when, I, when it comes to civilian drones, uh, they are discussing this thing about who would be responsible when the, for instance, civilian drones is, drone is flying without a remote control, with just one remote control, uh, a remote pilot, or if there's no remote pilot involved, is fully autonomous, how should you deal with that? Uh, I think it's currently it's still a matter of discussion. They, they haven't come up with the right kind of answers precisely because the systems are being seen as in very simple, simplistic way that there would be a pilot piloting a drone and, uh, you know, that person should be responsible. So it's still a matter of discussion. Um, and then, of course, the, the good use, for instance, civilian drones are being used for that purpose. And civilian drone is a very good example of dual use thing. You know, you can bomb the, a village with the drone or you can use it for delivering blood, blood samples or, or all, kind, all sorts of things. And that is already happening um, in the civilian sector. Thanks so much, Cecilia, please. Yeah. Uh, um, now, first of all, to the, to the question about how do we use autonomous weapons. I think one of the reasons that autonomy is so popular among uh, military actors is that they can be used for precisely that, to evacuate injured soldiers. They can be used to uh, disarm mines. They can have a lot of very, very important dirty work, dangerous work, and dull work in the battlefield. This is why it is so uh, advantageous. And coming back to also what Henrik said about the spoofing, the hacking challenges, this is one of the main reasons why you say we cannot have a, a system with a man in the loop, because if you have a man in the loop, 
the risk of hacking and spoofing and overtaking by the enemy is much higher. But if you close the system and say it's an autonomous system, you send it out and it would be very difficult for your enemy to take control over it. So there are these kind of dynamics that, it, that is you know, driving us in, in a direction of, of quite increased development of, 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 of the technology. When it comes to criminal uh, responsibility, as long as we do not have other types of international regulation, we rely on the default regime because the laws of armed conflict, it's, it's uh, technology neutral. If you are the military commander on top, you are responsible no matter what. And this is also what you see in Israel. Uh, the, the, the commanders are saying, this was my responsibility. I will take it in due time when the war is over. Uh, when it comes to some of the instances that we've had, I think we've had swarm attacks also in Syria and, and in some of the other theaters with less uh, attention from the media, so to speak, and less notoriety. Uh, I think that the, the, the idea today is that the criminal liability sticks. But it, it won't really help us, in my view, when we go some steps ahead. So for now, we are still okay. But we won't be. And then, of course, the question is, will law become an obstacle for developing these systems? And I think that perhaps it will, which is why I'm pretty optimistic that we might actually have some regulation. And again, coming back to this thing, are we regulating it because we want to save humanity and, you know, or are we also regulating it because the major military powers want to take more advantage of this technology? And I think that it is a mix of those two which is making me rather optimistic that we might have actually some movement on, on, on the issue of international regulation. What can Norway do? Without an international development, I think we are kind of <laughs> a little bit stuck with, with, with our allies in this, in this area. But I, of course, I, I would also always think and, and, and want Norway to take a leading role because this really concerns how our military is going to work and function, even our industry, in Norway to protect Norway. So I'm a little bit puzzled that we are not more engaged in this. There you go. Greg, we agree on that, don't we? <laughs> we agree. And, um, okay, when it comes to the EU level, uh, the main instrument is the EU uh, AI Act. It, however, which regulates use of AI systems, it, however, it excludes the military domain. There have been some EU regulations uh, put out by the EU Parliament that relate to uh, AI in the military domain. Uh, the issue of criminal responsibility, he, here I think it needs to be recognized that uh, although we talk about autonomous machine agents, these are not agents in the moral sense of the term. Okay? Uh, so the uh, responsibility for, for, for wrongs cannot be traced back to the machine as the primary agent of, of responsibility. Uh, that being said, if you, if you go into the literature on engineering safety, uh, you'll find out that it's standard in the field that the, the operator gets the blame, the human operator. But usually it's not just the human operator that's to blame. It's the whole system design that's the source of the problem. Uh, but for legal reasons, we still need to keep to ascribing, uh, holding the, the human operator accountable. And that would include, of course, commanders. Uh, last point, I think it's a great point about the, the humanitarian uses of robots, AI, uh, including uh, robots that function through AI. Uh, and now, I think you were suggesting that that, that those functions should entirely replace the, the, the military functions, and I mean bringing force to bear. Um, I don't see that happening. I think what, what because of the, the perceived military benefits of, of robots in, in, you know, in military settings. However, it would be important to encourage more thought about the humanitarian applications of uh, AI robotics. And uh, you mentioned, you know, rescue operations. Diffusing bombs is another arena. Uh, the, another would be a battlefield observer. Actually, to, to get eyes on seeing exactly what's going on. I mean, look, look at all the trouble trying to figure out that, that hospital bombing 
in Gaza? What what caused it? Well, so, yeah, the the okay, the, Cecilia, Cecilia will surely correct me on this point, but but there, the 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 discussion continues in the press. What was you know what happened exactly? But uh, yeah, that's it. Yeah. yeah, maybe we should introduce VAR as in soccer football. Um, thank you. These are uh, truly difficult questions, uh, truly complex ones. Uh, to end on a light note, I sometimes try to use AI for fun. And there is something called Bing now where you can ask questions. I'm sure I could ask Bing, what should we think about this? I should have done that and see the answer. Well, I asked it the other day, who is my wife? <laughs> who on earth is this Hannah Sousa? Um, they said, you know, she works for the defense ministry, this, that, and the other. wasn't too bad. And she's the brother of Hendrik Sousa. What? <laughs> and I asked her, what kind of education does she have? And said, well, we can't quite find out, but uh, maybe as her brother, she's interested in big questions of philosophy, and she may have inherited some of her brother's talents. <laughs> so fortunately, there are strange things happening out there. But of course, uh, the things that are not strange, but also dangerous and not least uh, truly dramatic in terms of the consequences it could have is what we've discussed here. So I want to thank you a lot for your contributions to all of you for coming. This is part of the AI Days at Preo, and it continues right in this room at 10 o'clock. Several of our good colleagues, some of them in the back here, will be talking about AI governance. So that's an excellent follow-up to this one. Uh, my students from also New University College, you will join me in the justice room for teaching, so I'm sorry we'll miss that one, but I know there will be many others here to listen to that. And then at 2 o'clock, the final panel we are having of our AI Days, which is on AI and the possible return of great power competition. And I know even our boss, Henrik, will be part of that one, a really interesting discussion. So join us for more, and this is only part of what we're doing related to things having to do with AI. But right now, please join me in thanking the panel here with a big round of applause. Thank you very much.